W-P-H-A-T. You're listening to the number one health and wellness podcast, the place where health and consciousness connect perfectly, perfectly healthy, healthy and tone, tone radio, radio, radio with your host, Darren McDuffie. And now prepare to get fat. What's cracking, peeps, and welcome back to the new Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I'm your show host, Darren McDuffie, and I say new because if you've been following the show for any amount of time, you've noticed that I've changed my image, and I also have a new website, so go by and check that out at perfectlyhealthyandtone.com. I took a long hiatus from the show just because I had a number of things going on personally, and I really wasn't inspired to do the show anymore, but after having that hiatus, things seemed to clear out, and things always seemed to work out, so I decided to jump back on here and start doing the show again. I'm sharing with you my first interview since the hiatus with Amy Berger and her book is called The Alzheimer's Antidote. Amy has a master's degree in human nutrition and she's a certified nutrition specialist and a nutritional therapy practitioner. I thoroughly enjoyed interviewing Amy on her book And here's what you'll learn from this episode. I asked Amy particularly about coconut oil. There's been a lot of research about coconut oil and Alzheimer's and Amy's done a lot of her own research and she answers that question. Another thing is about mitochondria. Why are mitochondria so important and why is everybody talking about mitochondria? And the last thing is meal frequency. As I was interviewing Amy, I thought about meal frequency because we're taught to eat three meals and then we eat snacks. We're always taught to kind of rev up our metabolism through eating and most of the time when we're doing that, we're eating carbs. And I wanted to know from Amy specifically, is this something that might be contributing to the Alzheimer's epidemic? And Amy answers those questions really succinctly. So I invite you to dig into this episode. And if you want to reach me, you can reach me at Darren at PerfectlyHealthyAndTone.com. That's Darren at PerfectlyHealthyAndTone.com. And go by and visit the website at PerfectlyHealthyAndTone.com. And while you're there, put your name, and your email in, and we'll be in contact. Thanks, and let's get into the show. Amy Berger, welcome to Perkley Healthy and Tone Radio. How are you tonight? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. As I said, you are my first show after a very, very long hiatus, so hopefully I'm not as rusty as I thought I would be, but I've been doing this for a while, so it should come uh, pretty easy for me. But normally what I do, Amy, is when I have someone on the show is I ask them about their background and I know that you are from the military. So how does someone from the military get into nutrition? Tell us about that. Oh, well, um, I was only in the military four years, so it wasn't a career. I was in the Air Force. I was a Korean linguist, uh, airborne linguist, if anyone out there is familiar with that particular job. Um, And the military lifestyle was not really for me. I am very proud to have served, but um, at the moment, the, the best thing that came out of it was I got to use my GI Bill for my master's in nutrition. So uh, it wasn't a total wash. And um, how did I get into nutrition? I mean, it's completely unrelated to my military career, but I grew up as a chubby kid and I was a chubby young adult. And as a kid, I was the classic couch potato. I was never without a book. You know, I just liked to sit and read. And as I got older, though, that changed. And I, I got a lot more active and I started running and I've I've run two marathons. And despite changing my activity and paying more attention to my diet, I was still chubby. And, you know, I worked so hard 
to lose weight and it just never went anywhere. And I would watch people that exercised much less than I did and ate much worse than I did and they were thin and they were slender. And I just spent a long, long time beating myself up and feeling guilty and feeling like a failure. And, you know, finally, I just put two and two together and said, what is wrong here? Something isn't working the, the way it's supposed to. And I stumbled into the world of low carb eating. And I my first introduction to it was Dr. Atkins's book, the 1992 version of his new diet revolution. And I, I haven't looked back. Um, it made sense. It, it made total sense to me why I wasn't losing weight despite eating a lot of low-fat foods, all those healthy whole grains. Uh, well, not so healthy, but at the time I thought they were. And um, reading that book gave me the courage to eat a lot more fat and, and the scary fat, even the butter and the bacon. And um, that's when the weight went away. And uh, so my, my introduction to nutrition and health came from weight loss, but over the years, it's, it's morphed into so much more than that. I mean, now I'm a, I'm a professional nutritionist that tries to help other people with this, but not just weight loss. I mean, obviously, we're talking about Alzheimer's today, but anything really related to elevated insulin, whether it's PCOS or type 2 diabetes or heart disease or, you know, even skin tags, like there's so many things related to this that we don't really realize. And so actually losing weight is kind of like the least of the issues. So, um, yeah, over time, I just started researching more about why and how this way of eating works. And, um, it just, it just makes sense. Yeah. It's always been, always been a saying of mine is fix your health problems and the weight will come off. And most people end up trying to lose weight and they never really end up fixing their health problems. But tonight we're discussing your book, the Alzheimer antidote. And this is very near to me because I've lost at least three family members from this disease. Most recently, I lost an uncle in uh, July of last year to dementia. He had been suffering for a long time. And, um, you know, you really hate to see someone pass away, but sometimes it's best for them too, if that makes sense, because you see them in all the suffering. And I can remember when um, his symptoms first set in, he lost a credit card and we were sitting in my mom's dining room at the time. And I remember him arguing with his wife saying that, why do you have my credit cards? And he couldn't understand you know, why he was forgetting things. And then it got progressively worse. But I guess my first question to you and getting into the science of Alzheimer's and really talking about the brain is how does this actually start happening? Um, good question. So I, I don't know if we know for sure, you know, with ironclad certainty, but what seems to be happening is uh, the cells in areas of the brain that get affected in this condition lose the ability to get energy from glucose. And and to kind of explain that in plain English, um, the body can run on a lot of different fuels, whether that's fat or, or carbohydrate, or we don't really like to run on protein, but um, People may have heard like the brain needs glucose, the brain has to get a certain amount of glucose. And um, so imagine what happens when the brain's ability to fuel itself from glucose is 
is in jeopardy. And that's basically what happens in this disease. And over time, you know, when somebody's younger like this, it doesn't happen overnight. Nobody wakes up all of a sudden with Alzheimer's disease. This happens gradually over a number of years and decades, but it starts happening in some people as early as, as their 30s and 40s. But at that time, when somebody's younger and healthier, their brain can compensate for this. So it doesn't they don't have any signs and symptoms. Their their cognitive function, their brain function is normal. And it's only over time when the disease progresses to a point that they can't compensate for it that you start seeing the memory loss and the confusion and the personality changes. But that's really the major problem in this condition is that neurons, the special brain cells in the affected areas of the brain become unable to harness energy from glucose. So it's basically a fuel crisis. It's an energy crisis in the brain. And as these brain cells are starved for fuel, they start to wither and they start to atrophy and die. And I wanted to ask you this, um, because of the brain being the most energy demanding organ in the body, is that why the propensity for Alzheimer's disease, the Alzheimer's disease comes about? That's a really good question. Um, it could be. Uh, we're not really sure why these cells, you know, undergo this change. What is making them stop being able to metabolize glucose? So I don't know that the fact that they require the most energy is why it's happening, but certainly because they need the most energy when they don't get enough energy of course it's a huge it's a huge problem talking about insulin because you mentioned that and a lot of people don't understand insulin and my next question is a lead into that because i remember just researching from your book where it talked about enzyme affinity is alzheimer's disease an enzyme affinity disease am i fair in saying that um, that's, that's a small part of it. I don't think that's the major factor, but that's, there's something going on there. Do you, I mean, do you want me to talk about insulin and the insulin? Yeah, talk about, enzyme? talk about insulin and talk about why that happens. Because in, in really understanding that from the book, I understand that there's two parts of that, that, you know, enzymes are looking to regulate insulin within the body, but there's another part to that as well. Okay, so I guess something I should have said earlier when we were talking about the glucose and how this is an energy crisis, Alzheimer's disease is regularly referred to in the medical and scientific literature as type 3 diabetes or diabetes of the brain. So right off the bat, that tells us there's something going on with glucose and insulin. Because if anyone out there listening knows about type 2 or type 1 diabetes, these are disorders of, of glucose regulation and insulin in the body. So um, one of the major, major risk factors for Alzheimer's disease is chronic hyperinsulinemia. And that's just a big fancy word that means your insulin levels are too high too much of the time. Um, and there's a lot of different things that contribute to that. But the main result is that you're, at least in Alzheimer's disease, your brain doesn't respond to insulin or glucose the way a healthy brain does. And the interesting thing about Alzheimer's disease is that a lot of Alzheimer's patients will have too much insulin in, in their body, but not enough insulin in their brain. It's almost like there's a there's a difference in the amount there. And insulin doesn't control 100% what glucose does in the brain, but it plays a role. And um, 
I guess we, we can talk about this enzyme called insulin degrading enzyme. And the really fascinating thing about this enzyme is it is ex- it's exactly what it sounds like, insulin degrading enzyme. Insulin is a hormone, and after hormones do their job in our bloodstream, they can't just stay in the blood forever. They have to be degraded and got rid of. So this enzyme, insulin-degrading enzyme, goes after insulin and gets rid of it. But Mm -hmm. another target that this enzyme works on is something called beta-amyloid protein, or just amyloid proteins. And these amyloid proteins build up in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. And these proteins, as they accumulate and they're not really cleared away well, they solidify and they form into something called plaques. And these amyloid plaques are believed to be a causing factor in this disease. There's there's another school of thought that says they're not causative, and we can maybe talk about that. But the bottom line is, whether or not these plaques are causing dementia, they're definitely making it worse. They actually get in the way of the physical structures in the brain that help the brain cells communicate with each other. So it's really fascinating that this insulin degrading enzyme clears away these proteins before they have a chance to accumulate and form into these plaques. So people that have very high insulin levels all the time, this enzyme is too busy going after all the insulin, thus leaving these amyloid proteins to accumulate. It's almost like the the enzyme is just occupied too much with dealing with all the insulin and so it doesn't it doesn't have time to go after these amyloid plaques yeah that's what i meant meant by enzyme infinity uh disease going back to diabetes and understanding insulin and 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 alzheimer's disease being actually called type 3 diabetes if a person has type 1 or type 2 diabetes is this a precursor to having alzheimer's disease later on in life Really good question. I don't think they've connected type 1 to Alzheimer's, but people with type 2 diabetes do have an increased risk for dementia. But this um, this is probably some of the most important things I'm going to say right here. People, type 2 diabetes is diagnosed only by looking at glucose, only by looking at your blood glucose in a fasting glucose test. It's also called your blood sugar. So um, either looking at your fasting blood sugar, your hemoglobin A1C, and what that is is like a three or four month average of your blood sugar, or your response to an oral glucose tolerance test, which is where like you go to your doctor's office or to a lab and they make you drink this really, really sickly sweet glucose solution and then they test your blood sugar at regular intervals to see how your body's responding to all that glucose. The problem with the way that type 2 diabetes is diagnosed is that nobody is looking at insulin. They're only looking at glucose and in many, many, many people, um, your blood glucose will be perfectly normal and even your A1C will be perfectly normal only because sky high insulin is keeping those things in check. And in Alzheimer's and not just in type 2 diabetes, but in things like PCOS, women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, hypertension, people who have skin tags, people who have gout, um, all of these conditions are related to high, high insulin regardless of your glucose level. And nobody's testing insulin. Fasting insulin, in my opinion, should be a standard part of routine blood work. And it's not. You have to specifically request it. And I think a lot of chronic medical conditions these days, including Alzheimer's, are being missed when they could be caught years before people get really sick 
if we were measuring insulin. Going back to diabetes, when people think about diabetes, most of the time, especially type two, we think about people who are overweight, but you don't necessarily have to be overweight to have a high insulin. Am I correct in saying that? Darren, I want to come give you a hug because <laughs> yes, oh my, you're, you're exactly right. And this is something that doesn't get enough attention in, in the mainstream media or even in, in the medical profession. Um, no, you certainly do not have to be overweight to have type 2 diabetes. You don't have to be overweight to have Alzheimer's. Of course, there's a lot of elderly people with Alzheimer's that are actually underweight. Um, they don't have enough meat on their bones. But no, the, um, the thing about high insulin is that some people respond by becoming overweight. Their body sort of traps fuel, their body traps carbohydrate and fat. Some people don't. Some people will experience a lot of other issues related to high insulin, but through some stroke of luck, they just don't get fat. They don't accumulate a lot of extra weight. So some of those people might have high blood pressure, or like I said, they might have gout. They might have erectile dysfunction. They might have... Um, you know, low HDL, high triglycerides, liver problems. There's all kinds of other things that will show up in people of all shapes and sizes. Mm. And I, I mean, I like, this is like a personal issue to me because I used to be overweight and I, I know that you can be healthy and, and be carrying extra weight or you can be thin. You can look good on the outside and be very, very unhealthy on the inside. Mm. A lot of people also are insulin resistant. So is this a another precursor to having Alzheimer's disease later on in life? It absolutely is. Um, in, in the research I've done anyway, you know, it's very possible that I've missed something, but chronic, chronically high insulin levels are actually probably the strongest or maybe one of the strongest risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. There is there is one genetic risk factor that we know of for sure, but other than that, yeah, the, the, the insulin resistance is, to me, it's like a smoking gun with Alzheimer's. Yeah. Get into <clears throat> just talking more about the brain and how the brain uses energy. If the brain is using energy efficiently how does that i guess the word is uh, if the brain isn't using using energy inefficiently how does that come about in stages when do we actually start seeing the alzheimer's because you said you mentioned earlier that it just doesn't start happening what is the first stage is that usually the memory loss because i mentioned as my uncle he started having just little things happen i also had this with my grandmother like she couldn't remember something it was just one thing and then it seemed as though it got progressively worse yeah i think it it manifests differently in different people um Every, you know, all of us are going to have those quote unquote senior moments, you know, even somebody young and healthy every now and then is going to walk into a room and forget why they went in there or you're going to misplace your keys. You know, it happens. That doesn't mean you're on the road to dementia. But, you know, once you reach a certain age and it starts happening more often, that's kind of a, a warning sign is that it's just happening more often. But other than that, you know, it, it could like I said, it manifests differently. So some people find like if their profession requires them to do a lot of math, they're not able to calculate things as easily off the top of their head. Um, you know, some people will actually forget words. 
So it's not just that they misplace things or, you know, oh, I think I was supposed to be somewhere Thursday, but I forgot. It's kind of like you, you could look at an object and you don't remember the name of it. You know, you point to the mouse or your keyboard, but you can't remember the word mouse and you call it something else or you just can't remember the word at all. So it's, there's a lot of different, a lot of different things that, that can happen. But generally, I mean, somebody, I think, I think people know when it happens and they're just afraid to, to acknowledge and tell somebody about it when those things start happening more. Yeah. You're making me think because sometimes I forget words, but I, but I think it's because my brain is moving too fast. <laughs> so, <laughs> sometimes I'm like four or five steps ahead of myself. And then I, the, the word just comes about one thing that I'm noticing um, as well, Amy is people are beginning to be diagnosed younger with Alzheimer's. It used to be that people were 70, 80 years old, but now it seems as though people are in their 50s and 60s and they're being diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. Why is that happening? Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I say, you know, they used to joke and call this old timers disease, but it's it's really not old timers anymore because you're, you're exactly right. People are getting this much, much younger. So part of it could be that, you know, people are living longer. Look at the look at the baby boomer generation. But then, like you just said, we're not talking about older people. We're talking about people sort of in midlife. So I think that due to a lot of the dietary factors we've had over the last couple of decades and, and some of the lifestyle issues too, um, these insulin resistance and disorders related to insulin resistance are much more common and they are affecting people at much younger ages. I mean, we don't have what we used to call adult onset diabetes anymore. We have type two because little kids get it now. Little kids get it. Teenagers get it. We're not talking about type one that used to be called the juvenile onset. We're talking about type two and little kids get it. Um, so I think assuming that Alzheimer's is a disorder of insulin and, and glucose metabolism, it's no wonder to me why it's happening to people younger. Because now, you know, we have the really the first couple of generations of people that have been raised on a very high carbohydrate diet. Um, you know, the generations that have been made to be afraid of natural animal fats. So it's, it's a confluence of, of factors, I think, that are contributing to people getting it younger. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because I think I grew up in the 70s. I don't want to date myself, but I'm not afraid of my age. <laughs> but I grew up in the 70s and I can remember all of the dogma that came out about not eating fats. We had this whole low fat thing and everybody was scared of fat. And that was probably early 70s. I was a child then. And I remember how my grandmother switched to Western oil. My mom started using vegetable oils and all of this stuff. Do you but, remember when Mc, McDonald's made their fries in beef tallow? Yes. And I remember those, when were, my, those were some tasty fries. <laughs> yeah, those were the best fries. I also remember yeah. when my grandmother used to keep a vat of bacon grease on the stove. And that's what she would make any time yes. she fried anything. That's what she would fry yeah. it in. But I guess my question is, do you think because we kicked out butter, lard, tallow, all of these different things. That's why we're experiencing what we're experiencing now. And you still have some people out there who vilify fats. I still see low fat in the grocery stores. I still people see people who are afraid of fat. Yeah, I think um, it's, a com it's a combination of dietary factors. I think the number one issue is this like incredible um, overload of carbohydrate 
you know, mostly sugar, mostly in the form of sugar and even just the refined grains. And I shouldn't say refined grains. It's the whole grain, too, because when you look at a thing of whole grain bread, it's still almost 100 percent carbohydrate. Um, when you take a whole, a hard red winter wheat berry and pulverize it into flour that doesn't even really need to be chewed, it will dissolve in your mouth. That's refined. I don't care how whole grain it is, you know. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's necessarily things like beans and potatoes and, you know, beets and parsnips and those kind of carbohydrates that are contributing to this. But certainly the, the huge amount of, of refined grain and sugar that we're consuming these days and combine that with what you were saying about the dramatic change that we've had in the composition of the of the fat in our diet i think as a population you know americans have we're eating a little bit less fat than we were you know i don't think we cut back on fat to the extent that the government wanted us to but nevertheless the kinds of fat we're eating now has changed so much that's probably the most dramatic change that's happened to our diet over the last 50 or 60 years um other than the amount of carbohydrate is this change from more of the animal fats to the vegetable oils to things like corn oil and soybean oil and cottonseed oil so um and those are very damaging because our cell membranes are made up of a lot of different types of fat and they can't have too many of those kinds of fats in in the cell membrane because they won't work correctly and if your cell membranes do not work correctly nothing works correctly not cellular communication, not your insulin receptors, your thyroid hormone receptors. I mean, anything that has to get through that cell membrane is going to have a problem. And I think the brain is literally built out of cholesterol and out of fat. And because it's, it's so fat heavy in the brain, you know, if we're not getting the right types of fats, it's just a disaster. So it's, it's, it's kind of like a, a double whammy, triple whammy, just multiple, different dietary changes that have happened that are contributing to this. Yeah. I wanted to get into that, the cell membrane, the neurons and mitochondria, because that's very important. But before I do that, talking about fat, I guess when you talk about fat, the usual thing that goes along with that is cholesterol. And again, most people are scared of fat because they're scared of cholesterol. But cholesterol is a good thing for the brain, is it not? It's like the best thing for the brain. Cholesterol has gotten such a bad rap. It's insane. It is the single most misunderstood and wrongfully accused like compound in, in probably the whole of medical history. Um, like I said, the brain is built largely out of cholesterol. I mean, you you cannot have healthy cognitive function and a healthy brain without cholesterol, just period, end of story. So it's no surprise that people on statin drugs, you know, statins are cholesterol lowering medications. If you go on the FDA's website or the Mayo Clinic's website, they very clearly state that memory problems are a known, well-acknowledged side effect of these drugs because you're depleting your brain of something that is so essential. And for people to think to even think that they can reduce the amount of cholesterol in their body by eating less of it, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, your own body generates so much more cholesterol than you could ever eat unless you were eating literally like nothing but egg yolks. <laughs> um, it's very, very difficult to change your blood cholesterol by changing the amount of cholesterol that you eat. And, and you might not want to change the amount of your blood cholesterol. Um, 
elderly, they've shown over and over again, older people with higher cholesterol levels actually tend to have better cognitive function. The people with, with dementia tend to have lower cholesterol levels. Um, and higher cholesterol levels are protective of what they call all-cause mortality, which means your risk of dying from anything at any particular age is less when your cholesterol is higher in your older years. Not, I mean, everyone dies of something, but it just means like your risk of dying early is less if your cholesterol is actually higher. This, this cholesterol thing is just so misunderstood. You know, people who have heart disease and who have heart attacks run the gamut of low cholesterol, high cholesterol, and everything in between. The amount of cholesterol in your bloodstream tells you absolutely nothing about the amount of plaque in your arteries. If, if people take nothing else away from this whole podcast, <laughs> take away that. Yeah. Can our cholesterol get too high in relation to Alzheimer's or obviously if it's too low, you're going to lose your memory. That's already a known thing, especially with the statins. But is there a point where it's too high to where it's dangerous as well? That's a really good question. Um, and I'm going to say I don't know. There probably is. But there's people even with cholesterol in, you know, 280, 290, even the low 300s that it might not be problematic if you look at that cholesterol as one piece of a much larger picture. You want to look at your fasting insulin, look at your glucose, look at your markers of inflammation. You know, nobody should be looking at one measurement as as the end all be all. So I don't it's hard to say. It's um cholesterol that's too high in someone who's very inflamed, very sick, um that could be a high. But, but I mean, most people really don't, don't have to worry about the cholesterol being too high. I, and I know the standard of care is if, if your cholesterol is over 200, the doctor wants to give you medication, but they just, any cardiologist should be able to tell you that people that have heart disease have low and high and everything in between cholesterol. As a segue into just talking about ourselves, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when we talk about statins, we talk about lowering cholesterol, but also one of the side effects of statin is it actually ends up uh, lowering uh, CoQ10, and we need CoQ10 for our cells. Um, is that a bad thing when it comes to, to Alzheimer's? Oh, that's a terrible thing, and not just for Alzheimer's. Uh, but yes, you're correct. Statin, statin drugs reduce cholesterol by interfering with a biochemical uh, pathway, but the statins interfere with this pathway very, very far upstream. Cholesterol is one of the last things produced in this pathway. And like you said, CoQ10 is also one of the very last things produced in this pathway. So the statin drugs don't just stop cholesterol. They impair everything else in that pathway all the downstream things. So yeah, CoQ10 is required for some of the processes in which the cells actually create energy. And like we said at the beginning, you know, Alzheimer's is an energy crisis in the brain. You lose the ability to generate energy in these cells. Um, and this is why a very common side effect of statins is muscle pain and fatigue and muscle weakness. It's because you, your body literally is not generating energy. So this is not it's not a surprise at all. It's not a mystery to me. And I actually hesitate to call those side effects. These are not side effects. These are, these are unavoidable effects of what happens when you impair 
this particular pathway. Like they're not side effects, they're direct effects of what this drug is doing. So let's get into the brain and just talking about, well, not even the brain, the body and the cells and the neurons and mitochondria, because I thought that this was really interesting. But I also was kind of geeky. I was geeked out because I got to kind of go back on my biology, things that I learned in high school and college that I wasn't able to, to call up until recently of going through your book and researching and, and getting on air with you. But. One of the things about the cell membrane, and you kind of explained this earlier, is that I call it, it must be structurally permeable. It must have, it must be able to let things in, but also keep things out. But explain the cell membrane and, and its importance, especially with the brain, and then talk about neurons and also mitochondria, because the mitochondria are, are really important. Um, from what I remember, they're kind of what I call the powerhouses of the cells. They are, yeah. So let's let's start with the membranes, I guess. Um, I, in my book, I call them the bouncers of the body. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like a bouncer at a club. The, the cell membrane has to let certain things in and kick certain things out. And if the cell membrane is not built correctly, if it doesn't have the right structure, then that's that function is not going to work. And the cell membrane is mostly built out of fats and it's also built out of cholesterol. So we need a certain amount of those things, but we also need the right kinds, like we said with the fats before. Um, and, you know, why, why is that important? Well, what are the kinds of things that get into the cells? Nutrients, things like zinc and things like vitamin B12 and choline and all these other nutrients that we need for healthy, healthy brain function, um, healthy cellular function all over the body. But, you know, we're talking specifically about the brain. Um, I, so if we want to talk about neurons, neurons, there's a lot of different types of cells in the brain. Um, neurons are one of them and they are the ones that are most affected in Alzheimer's disease. And, um, the way that these cells communicate with each other is that they, one neuron sends out a signal and it's, it kind of connects to a lot of other neurons from a, a, a synapses. The synapse is the, the place where the neurons, they don't actually touch, but it's like the little space across which these nutrients and different messages, uh, messages get transmitted. And, um, the synapse also has to have the right shape. And this whole entire apparatus is surrounded by these membranes. Um, so if the synapse doesn't have the, the right shape or the right structure, then everything falls apart. And same thing with the mitochondria. And you're right, the mitochondria are what we would call the, the powerhouses or the generators of the cell. They are where the vast majority of energy is actually created inside the cell. And um, there are so many neurological conditions these days that are being linked to problems with the mitochondria. So not just Alzheimer's, but multiple sclerosis, uh, Parkinson's disease, ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. All of these involve some type of problem with the mitochondria generating energy, which is why in Alzheimer's, you know, you lose your memory, but in some of these other conditions where it's the motor neurons that are affected, the neurons that help you move, it's why in ALS and multiple sclerosis, you have all this muscle weakness and you end up in a wheelchair. Um, so it's, I mean, Alzheimer's is fascinating to me because the mitochondria are damaged to some extent. And we, we mentioned earlier that they lose the ability to use glucose as an energy, except the mitochondria in Alzheimer's can, can still use something called ketones, which is another type of 
of fuel. It's another type of energy. I don't know how much we want to get into that. But um, basically, any condition where your mitochondria are not generating enough fuel is going to be devastating, whether it happens in your brain or any other part of your body. Yeah, it's, all, it's just so funny that you were talking about Lou Gehrig's, you talked about uh, multiple sclerosis, and all these things are autoimmune, and we, we, we're having this exploding autoimmune issue in the United States now. A lot of people have auto, autoimmune diseases, but it's so funny that it all relates back to uh, mitochondria and the powerhouses within the cells. Getting into what's out there for our elderly when they have Alzheimer's disease or they're diagnosed with dementia or any other thing that's out there, Parkinson's or whatever, how effective are the pharmaceuticals out there for, for these types of conditions? Well, I, I can't speak too much to the other conditions, but for Alzheimer's, there's really nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some pharmaceutical drugs, but they're largely ineffective. They do very little to halt the disease progression. They do almost nothing to improve the symptoms. Um, it's really just it's kind of like the drug version of lip service. It's like, here's your pill, but it's not really going to do anything. And it's, it's a tragedy. It's a, it's a tragedy that after all the years and, and all the billions of dollars that have been funneled into research, we were basically left with nothing. And it's, it's not that there haven't been drugs. There's actually been a lot of drugs developed that um, just haven't really had any effect on the condition. Nothing seems to pan out. <laughs> nothing was... that pans out, yeah. And I think it's because we are... The drugs are designed to chase symptoms. You know, each drug is designed to go after one particular thing that they see going wrong in this disease rather than having something to go at what the root cause is. What is the fundamental problem in this illness? This is something that blew my mind, and I wanted to ask you about it and kind of get it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. But when I read this, my jaw kind of dropped to the floor, and it was pernicious anemia and the whole stomach acid B12 thing and the, the link to anemia. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, that's. Uh, I would love to talk about that. So um, vitamin B12 is really critical for brain function. Uh, it's critical for the whole body, but it's really important for the brain. One reason is, because, I mean, many reasons, but the biggest one is that the myelin sheath requires vitamin B12. And the myelin sheath, if you think of your neurons, like, uh, I I said it backwards. I mean, the brain, the way the brain communicates is via electrical signals. And it's like a plug or like a, a cord from an electrical appliance that you have in your kitchen. It's surrounded by this rubber thing because you can't just have that metal, that live wire, not protected by anything. That's what the myelin does for your neurons. It protects the cells and it sort of insulates that electrical signal. Um, so if you don't have enough B12, you are not going to have proper functioning myelin. And so many of our elders have been on um, prescription antacids. Or even if they're not prescription antacids, many of them pop Tums and Rolaids like they're candy. And, you know, these drugs inhibit the body's ability to break down food and absorb nutrients. Uh, B12 deficiency is a well-known, you know, risk and side effect from being on these drugs long term. And B12 deficiency, one of the side of, uh, one of the signs is memory loss. And, and in, in the early stages, it, it, over the long term, 
the memory loss and the neurological damage from B12 deficiency is actually irreversible. So it's tragic. But um, caught early enough, you know, if you can supplement with B12 and, and get your levels back to where they need to be, because um, I think in some cases, B, severe B12 deficiency is misdiagnosed as dementia. And it's something that could actually be be completely turned around if it was diagnosed properly. Um, and it's it's really terrible because we're combining our older folks, and not just older folks, but everybody, being on these prescription strength antacids, we combine that with a diet that's low in B12. Because again, we've been scared away from the foods that are richest in B12, such as red meat and egg yolks and shellfish and liver. All these foods that we've been scared away from because they're either high in fat or they're high in cholesterol, but those are our best sources of B12. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody seems to be scared of the, the good things, the good fatty things. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, um, oh, we've gotten it so backwards. You know, your grandma was right with that can of bacon grease. And that's, you know, that was the, the classic picture out in the country. Everyone had that blue Maxwell house can with the bacon grease right on the kitchen <laughs> counter. Yep. yep. I can see it in my mind. Um, yeah. just sitting on top of the stove in a perfect world, Amy, if the world was perfect and everybody didn't overindulge in carbs, what would the brain, what type of fuel would the brain prefer to run on? Well, the brain always needs some glucose. Even when you go on a very low-carbohydrate diet, the brain still needs some glucose. That doesn't mean we have to eat a lot of glucose and carbohydrate. The, um, the body will generate glucose as needed from other things, um, including amino acids from protein and including uh, certain pieces of the molecules of fat that we eat. Um, so I don't think even in a perfect world, I don't think everybody needs to go on a crazy, crazy, very strict low-carb diet. But um, in a perfect world, the brain would be using the ketones we mentioned earlier mm-hmm. at least every now and then. Maybe not all the time, but the body would bounce in and out of using ketones. Yeah. I wanted to get into this too because this is a term that I heard when I was in fitness. I'm a, a fitness trainer as well. And I remember when my instructor started talking about this gluconeogenesis, I thought it was just the coolest word because I had watched the matrix and Neo (laughs) in the the matrix. And I would go around telling everybody gluconeogenesis, gluconeogenesis, like, and no one knew what it meant, but I knew what it meant. But, um, what is gluconeogenesis and why might it be important to understanding low carb and ketosis uh, as a whole? It's um it's a great word. I love that word. And it's it's a super fancy sounding word and all it really means is making new glucose. Um and what that means is the the human body always needs some glucose. There's a reason that your blood glucose will never be zero. Um you know, it's it has to remain at a certain threshold amount to be healthy. Um but that doesn't mean so the fact that the body needs glucose doesn't mean that we can only get that glucose by eating bagels and pasta and apple juice. Um, we can make the glucose from protein and from fat and from other things. And that's what gluconeogenesis is. And it's when those processes kind of go on in the body all the time. It's not a binary on or off thing. They happen all the time, but gluconeogenesis ramps up more when it needs to. Like for example, 
when you're not eating a lot of carbohydrate and your body still needs some glucose, it's going to kick those processes into action and, and make the glucose from other things. So there's really no danger of, of not having enough glucose if you're not eating any. I mean, you could actually survive just fine on, on what we call a zero carbohydrate diet with no starch, no sugar whatsoever. Um, I'm not saying that's recommended, but you could actually do it because your body will make the glucose it needs from other things. Let's talk a little bit about the ketogenic diet because I know that's something that it's really big right now and a lot of people are moving towards this ketogenic diet. If you did the research, you know about Alzheimer's disease. If you had a loved one that is suffering from Alzheimer's disease, would you switch them to a ketogenic diet and why? I absolutely would. And um, why is because uh, I, I think I mentioned before I could – I. Maybe I'm getting no. I'm, I'm not going to make a joke about that, but um, I think I did mention earlier that even though the brain has lost the ability to metabolize glucose, it can still metabolize ketones, and so it's almost like it's it's a way a ketogenic diet is a way of giving these starving neurons an alternative fuel that they can use, and they've done a lot of studies both in animals and in humans with Alzheimer's disease that when we get these people's ketone levels elevated, they do show improved cognitive function, um, and you know you can you can elevate ketones a bunch of different ways. A ketogenic diet is is one way to start, but the fact that so many people show improved cognition when they have higher ketone levels tells us that these brain cells are not dead. They can't, like I said earlier, they atrophy and they wither. And I did say they die. I think in the long term they die. But, you know, caught in the early stages, these cells are not dead. If they were dead, nobody would respond to a ketogenic diet or exogenous ketones. Nobody would improve. Like if these cells were, were completely gone, nothing you do would make this person better. But these people do have improvements. So that tells us that these cells are more like hibernating. They're kind of like in low power mode, like power save mode until they finally get this great fuel that they can use. Um, and why, you know, why hasn't anyone really quote unquote cured or reverse Alzheimer's? Because nobody knows about this. I mean, that's why I had to write this book. You know, nobody's mm -hmm. trying to give these people a ketogenic diet. And it's, it's not easy. I mean, I, it is certainly not easy to get someone with severe dementia who might be belligerent, who might have behavioral problems. It's really difficult to get them to change their diet. So it's, I'm not saying that it's easy, but if you can do it, um, I do think it helps cognitive function. And it, the questions remain as to whether this actually reverses some of the damage that's been done over over the long term, or is it just that, is it like putting a Band-Aid on, like it just kind of helps their thinking clarity in the short term, but, you know, underneath the disease is still progressing. That's like, that kind of remains to be seen. Either way, this is worth doing, because even if the disease is still progressing, if this person is able to behave more like their old self or their cognition is better, not only is their quality of life improved, but the loved ones and caregivers, their quality of life is improved. And really, in the severe stages of this disease, the people afflicted with the condition are not the ones that suffer. It's their loved ones. It's their children. It's their spouse. The people that have to watch this person go through it and deal with the consequences. Um, so I think even if it doesn't actually reverse it, 
um, I think it's still worth doing. And I, I, I could talk real quick about Dr. Dale Bredesen's work. This is a, a physician who has, in his words, reversed Alzheimer's. Um, hmm. They've actually done scans on one of his patients where his brain had shrunk. You can actually see this on the brain scan. The matter of his brain has shrunk. And after several months of being on Dr. Bredesen's protocol, his brain has, you know, reclaim some of its volume. I don't think it came back to like its its full size, but um, they've clearly actually reversed some of the damage. And, and, and so many of the people on his protocol show such great improvements in cognition. And his, his program is not even a ketogenic diet. It's a kind of a low glycemic, lower carb diet, higher fat, um, lots of coconut oil and MCT oil, which is a, helps the body make ketones, um, more sleep, like lots Almost all of the interventions in Dr. Bredesen's protocol do something about improving insulin resistance. And I think that's probably at the heart of why it's it's affected the way that it is. Yeah, I want to ask you a little bit more about coconut oil and some other things that I've heard about Alzheimer's just to see, you know, where where they are. But before I do that, um, and I guess you hit this, is that is it possible for someone to go on this type of diet, ketogenic diet, and at some point reverse or stop the symptoms of it? And I think you answered that, but maybe again, you might want to elaborate. Yeah, I think um, it's not known. I don't think it's known for sure whether um, if if we can retard the progress of the disease, you know, the progression um, kind of slow it down. We may not be able to stop it completely, but we could at least slow it down, make it a more gradual decline. And then, you know, maybe we can undo the damage. I think, I don't think that's known for certain. I think we need a lot more research to be done there. Um, and Dr. Bredesen now is training people all over the country, you know, doctors and nutritionists in his protocol. So hopefully we're going to start finding out, hopefully we'll get the answers to that. So, um, I wish I could say like, yes, this is a slam dunk. It slows down Alzheimer's. I don't think I can say that with confidence. I, what I can say is this is promising. It should work. Will it work? You know, we haven't had enough people try it. Um, but based on the biochemical mechanisms at work and, and what the ketogenic diet does, I don't know why it wouldn't work. Now, I will say it's probably going to be more effective in people that are younger and people whose dementia is less advanced. You know, if you're talking about someone who's 65 and is still up and about, maybe they can actually exercise a little bit versus somebody who's 88, that, that's kind of a different story. But uh, I, and especially considering there are absolutely no other effective interventions. There's no pharmaceutical drugs that help this condition. This, this is, in my opinion, the most promising thing we have. And I'm, I'm not saying like, oh, well, we have no drugs, therefore this is the only option. I'm saying this is an option because of the way the ketogenic diet helps refuel the brain. I want to get into it. <clears throat> diet and some of the myths that I've heard about Alzheimer's disease, just to kind of let you dispel some of those or maybe agree with, with those. But before I do, are there any tests? If you're a young person out there, are there any tests you may want to have run to see if you have the propensity to develop Alzheimer's? Is there a certain gene that you should be looking for when you're, when you're doing this? Good question. So number one, I would say make sure that 
when you get your regular checkups, insist on getting a fasting insulin test because if your insulin level is starting to creep up, that's a warning sign. But in terms of the genetics, yeah, you can um, – you can have your APOE status tested, and it's just a blood test. You only get it once because it's, it's a genetic factor. It doesn't change. Um, and other than the chronically high insulin, uh, the APOE4 gene is the largest known genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's. And um, that doesn't mean that having this APOE4 gene causes Alzheimer's. It increases your susceptibility. But to be clear, um, there's met, you know, a lot of people with the E4 gene who do not develop Alzheimer's disease, and there's many, many millions of people with Alzheimer's that do not carry that E4 gene. So it's um, having it is not a death sentence, and not having it is not a get out of jail free card. Um, you can you can trigger Alzheimer's regardless of what your genes are. But oh, I will say if you um if you have sorry a maternal ha- family history of it meaning if the women in your family your mother your grandmother your aunts have had dementia you're more likely to get it than if your if your male lineage has gotten it and it's not it's not for certain i mean it's you're not in the clear if 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 only the men in your family have been affected but to the extent that the mitochondria are affecting you know some development of Alzheimer's, we actually inherit all of our mitochondria from our mothers. Uh, at conception, there's there's no mitochondria passed on through the sperm. Maybe there are like some tiny exceptions, but we, we get almost all our, our mitochondria from our mother. So if you have a maternal family history, it does seem to have a higher risk. All right. Getting into some of the <clears throat> things that I've heard, <laughs> and I wanted to kind of get them from you. Uh, one of the things I've heard is aluminum. Aluminum has been seen in the brains of people with Alzheimer's dementia. How true is that? I will answer honestly. I don't know how true it is. Um, I've, I've heard that too. I haven't looked at a lot of the research on that. Um, to the extent that aluminum toxicity in the brain is interfering with glucose metabolism, then I think it could be a factor. Other, otherwise, I'm not really sure how it would interfere. And I, I do think that the fundamental problem in Alzheimer's disease is the loss of this glucose metabolism in the brain. So I'm not saying it's unrelated, but I'm saying like that would be the connection that I would, I would look for. How effective is coconut oil in helping with the symptoms of Alzheimer's? Coconut oil is kind of amazing. Um, I'm not going to use the word miracle, but there I said it. Um, no, I mean, coconut oil contains a special type of fat that the body more readily converts into ketones um, than, than other fats. So the really fascinating thing about coconut oil and also MCT oil, so medium chain triglyceride, that is the special type of fat that's found in coconut oil. You can now buy purified MCT oil online and at health food stores. This, um, this particular fat will elevate somebody's ketone levels even when they're still eating a high carbohydrate diet. That's why this is so promising because like I said earlier, there's a lot of people that are very sick with this illness. You are not going to get them overnight to trade in their cereal and orange juice and muffin for eggs cooked in butter or coconut oil. So whoever prepares food for this person can maybe start cooking a ton of, you know, cook everything in coconut oil, put it in a, put coconut milk in a smoothie. Um, Dr. Mary Newport is a physician whose husband had Alzheimer's disease and she 
she's kind of a pretty prominent researcher now, but when she first started out, she was just looking for ways to help him. And she read a little bit about coconut oil and, and ketones and the brain. And she did nothing at first except add coconut oil to his oatmeal. She didn't change his diet at all. He was not on a ketogenic diet. And even with just that, she noticed an improvement in his cognition. And so, and that led her to, to research much more about ketones and a ketogenic diet. But I mean, that's how powerful these things are that even in someone who has made no other changes to their diet or lifestyle, eating a lot of coconut can help. Now, I don't think that that's going to do anything to halt the disease progression or to reverse some of the damage that's already been done. I think that only manages the symptom in the short term, but we shouldn't dismiss the importance of that. That's a huge deal, you know. Let's sway more towards the diet because I know the people out there listening are going to be like, well, what should you do for a diet? Obviously, a ketogenic diet is low carb, uh, high fat. One of the things I wanted to ask you, and you made a very good distinction in the book with this, was talking about vegetables because many people do not understand carbs are veg vegetables are carbs. And that was something that was a realization to me uh, coming through fitness because I was always told you can eat as many vegetables as you want without any side effects. Is that true when it comes to a diet like the ketogenic diet and helping out with uh, Alzheimer's? Uh, no, it is not true. Um, so there's a lot of different kinds of carbohydrate, right? There are starchy carbohydrates, which we think of as, you know, the grains, the wheat, corn, oats, rice, so all, and all the things that are made from that, you know, pasta, bread, cereal, cookies, crackers. But there's also non-starchy carbohydrates. So people maybe don't realize that lettuce is a carbohydrate and broccoli, asparagus, eggplant, those are carbohydrates. They're not starchy, but they're still carbohydrate because they're obviously not fat and they don't seem like proteins. Well, there's only one thing left and that's carbohydrates hydrate. Um, so people that are doing a low carb or ketogenic diet can eat a fair amount of those non-starchy carbohydrates. And, and some people can even eat a little bit of fruit, especially berries, because they're, they're lower in sugar than something like, you know, mangoes or cantaloupe. Um, so no, people, people don't need to be afraid of carbohydrate, but they have to know the right kinds of carbohydrate to eat. And, and, and to be clear, you know, I try to emphasize that I don't think wholesome, unrefined carbohydrates, even the starchy ones like potatoes and beans and beets and yams, I don't think those are causing insulin resistance or causing dementia. However, once your brain is already to the point that it can't metabolize glucose due to other factors such as the refined sugar and the refined grains and the, you know, the, the unhealthy vegetable oils, once your brain has already gotten to the point where it can't use glucose well, then it does no good to keep flooding your body with more glucose from all these starchy carbohydrates. So if somebody's looking to use diet to potentially ward off dementia, I don't know that a very strict ketogenic diet is required or that people need to be afraid of eating lentils or chickpeas. Um, but once, once you're already in the disease and it's advanced, there's just no point to, to keep fueling on starch and sugar. Yeah. Protein. How important is protein and should we be afraid of red meat when it comes to Alzheimer's disease? 
I don't think we should. No, I think um, protein is very important, and most older people actually don't eat enough of it because um, you know somebody somebody who's older, and especially if they live by themselves, they're it's it's just easier for them to make a bowl of oatmeal for dinner than to for them to grill a pork chop, you know, or for them to cook a steak. Let alone if if they're even if they even have the dexterity in their hands anymore to cut it or to chew it. You know, a lot of older people have dentures. I mean, these are real life issues that people have to take into account. So, no, we don't um, we don't need to be afraid of protein, and we don't need to be afraid of red meat. I mean, that's just been debunked over and over and over again. Um, People on very strict ketogenic diets have to be careful not to overdo protein because um, when you eat a lot of protein, it can interfere with ketosis. But for most people, that's not a problem. Most people would have to work to overconsume protein, like to cross the threshold into what we would consider too much. And and too much is going to be an individual thing. I mean, I couldn't even give you a ballpark. Um, and I actually think most most older people just don't eat enough protein, so I wouldn't worry in their cases. Yeah. This question is popping in my mind and I wanted to ask you uh, real quick before I ask you about fruit. But um, if you're a caretaker of someone who has Alzheimer's, obviously you have to test them for ketones if they're going to go on this ketogenic diet. What's the most effective way to do that? Because I know from just past experience with talking with others about ketogenic diets, they usually do the blood and you're pricking the person's finger or, or something of that nature. But is it, I guess, is it is going to be the easy thing to sit there with someone who's elderly and, and pricking their pain, their finger? How can you, is there a way to get around that or is just something that you're, you're going to have to do? Well, no, that's a good question. Um, my first, the first thing I would say is you don't have to test. Um, it helps to test because mm-hmm. testing will at least prove to you, okay, this person is actually in ketosis. Because if they're not, you know, if, if you've had somebody on a ketogenic diet or you're giving them coconut oil or exogenous ketones and it's been you know six weeks and you you don't notice any improvement whatsoever in their cognitive function maybe they're not actually in ketosis and so measuring is a way for you to see whether or not they're actually in ketosis and that can guide you to making changes to what you're doing with them um so but i think implementing this diet is hard enough. I don't want people to think that they have to test because you're right, it is difficult, especially mm-hmm. with somebody who's elderly or someone who, you know, if they don't need help to use the bathroom, you know, are, are you going to get them to, to want to test the, because you can test in urine too, this little test strip that you just basically have to run through your urine stream. Um, that's probably the easiest way to do it because it's not invasive. You know, you don't have to, um, you don't have to prick their finger. There is a breath meter. So you can test with breath, and the breath meter is probably the um, the most economical. The, the urine test strips are not expensive. The blood test strips are very expensive. It's it's pretty cost prohibitive for people to test that way. Um, with the urine strips, though, there there's a lot of kind of confusion about them. They're they're not that accurate. Um, and and when you test in your urine, you know those are urine uh, ketones that you're excreting. So you're not actually using those, you're peeing them out, literally. Um, but that's still an indicator that you have produced ketones and, and most likely there are some in your blood and, and some fueling your brain. I would say just watch the person. If, if their ketones are elevated or even if their ketones aren't that elevated, if some type of fueling switch has happened in their brain, you'll know it. They'll start acting differently. They'll start, you know, 
remembering words differently. I mean, depending on how severe the dementia is, you might be able to know it or they might even be able to tell you that they feel different. A couple of more questions to ask you. One is um, fruit. How are they allowed to eat fruit if they have this condition or what would you stay away from when it comes to fruit? Fruit is totally acceptable um, as long as it's a certain kind of fruit. Um, I think berries are okay. Berries are um, very high in some of the compounds that might be helpful for cognitive function. Some of these polyphenol, like I know blueberries are sort of celebrated in the Alzheimer's community, but raspberries contain the same thing. Um, I would stay away from grapes, from apples, from pears, from things that are kind of higher in sugar and a little bit lower in fiber. That being said, there is nothing that you can get from fruit that you can't get from non-starchy vegetables, whether it's vitamin C or fiber or beta carotene. There is there are no vitamins and minerals that you get from fruit that you can't get from other, and not just vegetables, but from animal protein. People have no idea how nutrient-dense meat is. Eggs, I mean, beef, liver, poultry, like these things are loaded with vitamins and minerals. People don't don't realize, you know, we tend to think of, of fruits and vegetables when we think of those things. So you could absolutely go zero fruit if you wanted to. But if your loved one really enjoys fruit, fruit is okay, but you really have to keep the amount small because it just, it builds up very quickly. You know, for the same amount of carbohydrate in a handful of grapes, you could probably have three bowls of broccoli. How advantageous is it to be gluten-free if you are, if there's someone out there you're taking care of or you have Alzheimer's disease? That is a good question. Um, some people, I think Dr. Perlmutter among them, who's you know really well known for brain health, think that everybody should be gluten-free and especially Alzheimer's patients. They think like gluten is directly neurotoxic. I... I just don't know um, because I think there are certain products that contain gluten that can be very helpful for, for people to comply with a low-carbohydrate or ketogenic diet. And I mean things like very high-fiber, low-carbohydrate crackers and like bran crisps, things that just make this diet more palatable and more enjoyable, but they do contain gluten. But they're still very, very low-carbohydrate. You know, you could have three or four crackers and it's maybe three or four grams of carbohydrate total versus, you know, 20 grams and a slice of bread. So um, if you wanted to do gluten-free, you absolutely can. I don't think it's required. I know there are other, you know, um, there are doctors and other experts that would disagree with me. And I I would sort of, um, I would defer to their expertise. I, I think if, if somebody has the wherewithal to go gluten-free, do it. But I don't, I just don't think that's where the biggest bang for the buck is with this diet. I'm gluten free, but you know, I just decided because I was sensitive to gluten to kick it out of my diet. It's been good for me. But um, the next question is just exercise. Obviously, if someone who ha is in cognitive decline, they're not going to be able to to exercise. But is exercise one of those things that might deter or kind of slow down or retard uh, Alzheimer's disease in the long run? Yeah, I think it is, and the research seems to support it. But you're right. I mean, for people that have very severe dementia, it's not safe for them to exercise. So it's like exercise is kind of icing on the cake. I think a very low-carb ketogenic diet is 
like the money shot, like that's where the real power is. All this other stuff is is a bonus if you can if if it's safe for the person to do. So the exercise, I think the reason it might be good for brain health is that it's so good for insulin sensitivity. And to the extent that Alzheimer's is a problem of insulin resistance, anything you can do to improve insulin sensitivity is going to help. And the other um, the other thing with exercise is that. There's a compound called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. And I, I was on an interview with a doctor who called BDNF miracle grow for your neurons. And, um, you know, we're led to believe, like, you you never make new neurons. You don't generate new neurons. Like, you're, you're just born with your brain cells and that's it. But that's not true. We do make new neurons. And we make new um, synapses, new, new pathways for these neurons to connect with each other. And this BDNF is very helpful for that process and kind of stimulates that process to happen. And exercise is one of the most powerful ways to increase BDNF. Yeah. The last question is, is this, and um, you just talked about insulin sensitivity and kind of reducing that, but what about fasting? Cause I know fasting does that, but can you implement fasting in someone who has Alzheimer's disease or someone who has an onset of, of AD? Uh, you can, but if the person's underweight, I don't recommend fasting. And there are a lot of um, older people that are underweight. Um, if if somebody is overweight or is uh, has high insulin levels, I think fasting is actually one of the best things they can do. Um, because there are some people who are so uh, highly resistant to insulin and have such a low insulin sensitivity that even when they eat a low carb diet, their insulin levels still don't really come down that much. Like even when they eat a low carb meal. So eating no meal is really one of the only things that gets their insulin to come down. Um, I don't think everyone has to do a long-term fast. You could even do like 24 hours once a week or, you know, they, they have this intermittent fasting with, with a compressed eating window. So meaning you, you only eat for eight hours a day, meaning like, let's say between what, 10 and six or something, one, two, three, four, five, is that eight hours? Like you only eat food between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. Maybe you have breakfast at 10, you have dinner at six and that's it. You don't eat outside that window. So you still spend more than half the day in a fasted state. So yeah, I think fasting can be extremely therapeutic, but it should, um, it's not appropriate for everybody. So you kind of have to watch out as to, as to whether it's right for the person. Yeah, this just came to my mind. This is absolutely the last question because I don't want to keep you that much more. But we have been brought up to eat three meals a day. And then in between those, most people are snacking as well. Do you think that has contributed to our insulin levels raising? And, and, and we also, far off from that, that has contributed to AD Alzheimer's disease because we're eating so frequently because I know one of the things in the fitness arena is you got to eat three meals a day, keep your metabolism stoked. But is that fueling the fire for problems later on? I think it is. And now I want to come give you your second hug of this interview. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. I think um, it's so unnatural to be constantly snacking throughout the day. Um, you know, I'm not like, you shouldn't feel bad if you snack. You shouldn't be ashamed of yourself if, if you're hypoglycemic or you feel better with snacking than snack. But I do think especially people with insulin resistance, you know, the worst thing you can do is be eating all day, be grazing all day because 
your insulin levels never get a chance to return to baseline. They never get a chance to come back down to normal because you're constantly raising them every time you eat. Even if you eat low-carb food, your insulin is still going to go up a little bit. Like if you're having pepperoni and cheese as a snack, um, you know, if you're snacking on a pat of butter, then you're fine. But, you know, some some people do that, but not, not most. Um, I think three squares a day is good even two squares a day or one square a day, you know, some people get used to fasting where they eat one meal a day and it's a very large meal, but they only eat once a day or some people eat twice a day. Um, this, this constant snacking is just, I don't know if it's like a ploy by the food industry, but you know, I don't know how it is overseas, but in, in America now you go into a shoe store and there's a snack, there's a snack display and you go into Best Buy to buy a TV and there's food, like there's food in places where there should not be food. And we're sort of led to believe that it's, that it's necessary to be constantly eating. And I just don't, I don't think it is. And I think most people are actually not even hungry. They're bored. And, and if they're not bored, they're not hungry. They're hypoglycemic. Like if you eat enough protein and enough fat at a meal, you shouldn't feel the need to eat again for about three or four hours. Um, you know, if you're hungry two hours after a meal, you either didn't eat enough at that meal or you probably didn't eat enough protein. And I find that is probably the number one thing that leads women to binge on sugar late at night is most of them are not eating anywhere near enough protein. Yeah, this could be a totally another interview. So I'll have you back at some time. But Amy, thank you for coming on. Your book is The Alzheimer's I can't even pronounce it. The Alzheimer's Antidote. And uh, it's available on what all the local book outlets, Amazon. Yeah, it's on books. it's on Amazon. It should be at uh, Barnes and Noble, big bookstores. Um, there's a Kindle version. There's no Audible version at this time, but uh, <clears throat> we might we might try to do that for the future. But yeah, um, definitely get it on Amazon. Okay. And do you have a website if people want to check you out? Where would they go? Yeah, my site is Tuit Nutrition. It's t u i t nutrition dot com, and it's uh, it's kind of just my blog for now. But over the next few months, I'll be adding a lot more content, especially for uh, people that are new to low carb and kind of how to how to help them get started. Cool, Amy Berger. Thanks for being on. Thank you so much. You you really did your homework. Great questions. Thanks. <laughs>